0: At the Coca-Cola Company, Keurig Dr. Pepper, and PepsiCo, some of our bottles can be remade in a whole new way, using 100% recycled plastic. New bottles, using no new plastic, except the caps and labels. Learn more at madetoberemade.org. Support for this
1: show comes from Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Loom help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually we're great, but together we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A T L A S S I A N.com.
0: Atlassian. From Cafe and WNYC Studios, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Barara.
1: A couple of Trump advisors over the years have said to me that people close to him invariably begin to act like him in ways big and small. And that is true. I have observed that personally. His detractors sometimes also
0: begin to act like him.
1: And I think that Twitter has exacerbated that and accelerated
0: that in a big way. That's Maggie Haberman. She's a White House correspondent for The New York Times. And she's reported some of the biggest scoops about the Trump administration. I'm glad we're starting the year 2018 with Maggie. A lot's happened in 2017, and we know a lot will happen in 2018. And much of the news has been about the President of the United States, and there's probably nobody in the country who knows more about what makes him tick and what makes him act the way he does than Maggie Haberman. So we're recording this at 1.30 on Wednesday, January 3rd. And as I was walking over here, literally, to the studio, there's a bit of breaking news that... Is relevant to my life and my prior life, which will become public, I think, this afternoon, and you'll all know about it when you're listening to this Thursday, when the pod drops. And that is that the Justice Department, uh, under Donald Trump, has decided to replace my successor as U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York, June Kim, who had been my deputy. I have a lot of thoughts about that and about the process. And uh, a word of thanks to June and encouragement to the new interim United States Attorney. But I have a lot of questions to answer from over the break and I'll get to that first and you'll hear what I have to say about the Southern District situation at the end of the show. Okay. Let's get to some of your questions. Hey, free This is John in Charlotte, North Carolina. I had a quick question that uh, I hadn't really heard discussed much. If uh, President Trump did actually shut down the investigation, not just fire him, but shut it down. what? Would then be the uh, restrictions on Bob Mueller and the other individuals in that team of just talking to the press about what it was that they had uncovered. I mean, if there's no longer an active investigation, obviously they couldn't talk about classified material, but could they still discuss other elements? Thank you very much, uh, John. That's a that's an interesting question. So let me take a shot first. I'm not sure what it might mean to shut down the investigation apart from firing Mueller and the rest of the team. I think the only way to shut it down is to is to stop them from doing their work. And so long as they're doing their work and have employment in the special counsel's office, they can continue the investigation. With respect to what they would be permitted to say later, um, you know, my view is that, you know, in whatever context, either as special counsel or as a former United States attorney – At a minimum, you need to be very, very careful not to disclose anything that transpired in the grand jury. What happened in witness interviews in the grand jury, what grand jury subpoenas were issued, that would actually be unlawful for Bob Mueller or anyone else to reveal, even after the investigation is terminated. Uh, I also think, though, that other sensitive information is probably best left not talked about. It's generally the policy that I have followed. It's generally the policy that I think people follow. And while it might not be a crime to talk about some of those things, I think it probably does more uh, harm than good unless there's some official process or way by which that information can become known. And one of the ways that I guess it could become known is if Congress has hearings on the the shutdown of the investigation or the firing of Mueller and an impaneled group of people, including Bob Mueller, would be required to answer questions from Congress And that, to me, would be the most logical, fair, ethical way for information uh, in a shutdown investigation to come to light. That might not be satisfying to hear, uh, but it strikes me that that would be the best course if it was shut down. And I think most people in America, uh, reasonable people at least, uh, hope and pray that the investigation is not shut down because it would be bad for everyone, including the President of the United States. Hi, Preet. My name's Mike. I'm calling from Los Angeles and i wonder if it is legal for president trump to initiate military action against north korea without congressional action thanks bye uh look i'm not a, an expert on uh, military law you know but i know a little bit about the constitution and there has been this constant debate over time about you know between the two branches of government between the congress and the president about who has the constitutional authority to declare war and what constitutes war and whether military action is in fact war or is it a police action like some things that went on in the 50s and the 60s. And I think these things are usually worked out politically. Presidents have a very, very strong hand in foreign policy. I think most people want it that way. They may want it less with this president, given the kinds of things he's been tweeting about nuclear war in North Korea. But it remains the case that the president, whether it's a Democratic president or a Republican president, has a lot of ability, uh, political authority, and, and legal authority, frankly, uh, to engage in both foreign policy and in certain kinds of military action around the world without a lot that other people, including Congress, can do about it. And then I'll also just state the obvious, which may sound macabre, but if the president of the United States chooses to engage in some action that involves that button he's been bragging about that's on his desk that works, there's not a lot to be done about that after the fact, is there? Uh, So the next question comes from Twitter from someone named Jennifer Lee. And for context, it is a tweet responding to what I tweeted on New Year's Eve. And I was hanging out with my family at my uh, brother's apartment in the city. And we all were sitting around eating and drinking. And I wrote, Happy New Year, everyone. Still trying to come up with resolutions. My daughter just suggested, how about write better tweets? Point taken. And Jennifer asks, uh, thank you for this. It's very kind. Uh, So what's wrong with your tweets? I'm a PR maven, and I feel they have been right and great. Jennifer, you're awesome. Uh, So, you know, I don't know what my daughter was referring to. I think it's the standard 16-year-old practice of thinking your dad is an idiot and a dork. I I think she thinks that lovingly. Um, (laughs) It was her way of poking fun at me in front of the whole family, which obviously I appreciate and cherish. Look, Twitter is sometimes a place where you have a strong feeling in the moment and you respond to something. And there have been a few tweets that I've sent that I didn't love after the fact because it's easy to react quickly. It's hard to give nuance. It's hard to be detailed. It's hard to present a full picture, which is one reason why I love the podcast. And I have the opportunity to talk at some length in answering a question or in probing an issue with a guest uh, or in revisiting an issue in a later podcast and talk about both sides of a question when you only have a few characters in Twitter, that's really not possible. So I I view it as a way of sort of promoting the show to some extent and also to have a quick glib reaction or, um, you know, point for what it's worth to make to a few hundred thousand of my closest friends in the moment. But But it is not a way to engage in deep, complex, rich conversation or dialogue. And it's certainly not a way for... A public official, to engage in foreign policy and legislative action, I think, either. And I guess I guess, one final thing, which is also breaking news, as I was basically walking over here to the studio, there is, and I don't know if this is true or not, as reported in an upcoming book by Michael Wolff, Steve Bannon, former top advisor to the president of the United States, had some choice words about some of the meetings that Donald Trump Jr. had with some Russian folks. And not that any characterization by Steve Bannon, for a lot of reasons, carries any legal weight whatsoever, the fact that he uses the word treasonous to describe some of those encounters, that's not a small thing. And I guess we should stay tuned to see how this turns out. Literally, as I'm sitting here in the studio on Wednesday afternoon, we took a quick break and someone handed to me the lengthy statement made by President Trump about his erstwhile friend, colleague, confidant, supporter, Steve Bannon, uh, it's a pretty good read. I don't have any comment to make on it yet because I'm still digesting it, but maybe we'll talk about it next week. My guest this week is Maggie Haberman. So I'm excited to have her on to talk about covering the Trump White House and what it's like to be a journalist right now at this time in America, especially working at the New York Times, what it's like to cover a president like Donald Trump who at any given moment might attack you personally by name on Twitter or on TV, what the nature of fairness is in journalism, how journalism works. I think you'll enjoy the conversation, whether you agree with everything she has to say or not. Stay tuned. Support for this episode of Stay Tuned comes from Mint Mobile. A huge monthly cell phone bill might feel inevitable. We've all gotten used to climbing rates, surprising surcharges and expensive plans and most of us shrug and assume that we're stuck and there's no other option so we just pay but what if there was another option an option that was much more affordable allow me to introduce you to mint mobile mint mobile offers wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month when you purchase a three-month plan all mint mobile plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5g network you can make the switch and keep the phone and number you have right now along with all of your existing contacts. You can get this new customer offer and a new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just $15 a month by going to mintmobile.com preet. That's mintmobile.com preet. You can cut your wireless bill to $15 a month at mintmobile.com preet. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. At the Coca-Cola Company, Keurig Dr. Pepper, and PepsiCo, our bottles might still look the same, but some of them can be remade in a whole new way, using 100% recycled plastic. New bottles made using no new plastic except the caps and labels. You'll be seeing more of these new bottles in more places, and that's thanks to you, because when we get more bottles back, we can use less new plastic. Learn how our bottles are made to be remade at madetoberemade.org. Maggie Haberman, welcome to the show. You're the first guest in the year 2018. Thank you for being here. That's cool. Thanks for having me. As our listeners know, you, Maggie Haberman, have been for a few years now from, is it the failing New York Times or the failed New York Times? I always forget which verb form. I
1: don't know. I, I, I lose track. I think today's tweet was failing. But, but you could you could set that to repeat. Most days, tweets
0: are... That Is that a recovery from, from failed?
1: Uh, I don't think he ever said failed. Did he ever put it in the past tense? I, I don't think know. it's been rolling. No, he
0: did. I thought he said failed once, recently.
1: Oh, I think he said failed in his interview As with As an Mike alternative. Yes. yes. Oh,
0: we're going to get to the Mike Schmidt interview in a moment. Okay,
1: well, I don't want to segue too fast.
0: <clears throat> <laughs> Sorry. Just quickly on a personal note, I do want to say that, you know, you and I have known each other for a few years, mm-hmm. and you were one of the first people uh, to whom I mentioned last summer, uh, spring or summer, that I was thinking about doing a podcast. And I wanted to say that you were very encouraging and I appreciate your support for doing this weird thing that's kind of journalism.
1: You have an interesting voice and you're, you're a good talker.
0: So. <laughs> I'm not sure that's a compliment.
1: Uh, talking to but, a good talker is a very important okay. thing.
0: All right. Well, thank you. So here we are and now. And now we're talking. And now I, I made you come here and, and be on the show. <laughs> given happy your, to be here. Giving your support. Um, I read somewhere that you were the most red writer at the new york times is that true Do you I follow these things
1: there was some stat that there were in 2016 that the most clicks were on stories that my name were on it sounds it's a i don't understand how they were parsing it but i don't you understand i know it's there's there's these metrics and the analytics it's called analytics right um, do
0: you care do you care about that no be honest i don't does anyone care about that?
1: I like. The, I like. The, you didn't believe me the first time. You know. um, clearly, <laughs> well, whoever, I don't know. You no, no, the, no, no. Thank you. Um, one wh-
0: of the people you covered cares a lot about ratings, and that's true. You assume that people want to be successful. You know, how, how do you measure that you're doing a good job? Or not? You mean you, you write stuff? You want people to read it, don't you?
1: Yes, I do. I want people to read it. Um, look, it's different when you're at the Times because the the platform is bigger than most other platforms, right? So you assume people. It, it's not like when I, when I was at Politico, which you know, and I love Politico, uh, and I owe Politico a lot. You know, when I went to Politico from the New York Post, there were still a lot of people in New York who were like, what's Politico? And right. it's just sort of fighting for oxygen in a different way. So to a certain extent, as a Times reporter or slash writer, you don't know how many people are reading you because it's something that they have faith in the byline versus they have faith in the institution. So I guess that's what I'm saying. It is institution over the individual. So I don't think about stats like that.
0: You know, we, people who are in journalism or who have been covered by journalists all understand the vocabulary. Mm. On the record, off the record, Mm -hmm. background, anonymous sources. And there's a lot of discussion in the country, and some of it is fomented by the president about fake news. And there's a lot of commentary and debate about what good journalism is. And so can I ask you just to take us through some of the terms and the definitions and how it works? Because I hear people talk about these terms all the time. I think I know what they mean, but I'm not sure that I do fully so so let's start with that. Let me answer answer your question first with
1: a question of my own, which is yeah. how many reporters did you ever deal with in your career who appeared to have different interpretations of what the word background means? Many.
0: Right. And you had to be very clear at the beginning right. what you were getting yourself into. Mm-hmm. And I've also dealt with reporters who are unscrupulous and say that they right. mean one thing, but right. then you said something right. that they really like. Right. And then it causes trouble. There's a lot of discussion and debate about anonymous sources. Mm-hmm. What's an anonymous source?
1: An Anonymous source is a source who is um, providing information for the story but who is not uh, named either – not named in any way. You can qualify it by um, describing their job or describing what they do. And the goal is to make it so it's not just one person said. The problem is you rub up against, you know, wanting to be as transparent as possible so people understand this is a person who knows what they're talking about and has a reason to be quoted here without exposing the person and making it easy, especially in an administration like this that has been pretty focused on leak hunts. um, To be clear, the Obama administration was pretty focused on leaks too, um, just in a different way. You have to counterbalance wanting to make clear who the person is or why the person has credibility with not exposing them.
0: Explain why journalists use anonymous sources at all.
1: So there are a variety of reasons. Oftentimes when it comes to... um, certain types of reporting, particularly about government activity, um, about investigations, about police activity. I mean, those are those are the main kind. They're the most justifiable.
0: Because the source will get in trouble.
1: Because the source is speaking without authorization. Then there are other times that you have people, and this is a real problem in journalism where we always have to push back. Um, you have people who just want to ask for anonymity for the sake of asking for anonymity. And this is why it's important to push. You know, is there a reason that you often will see a Trump administration official quoted taking a swipe at someone, and it's there, It's clearly someone from the press office, and they're quoted as, you know, an administration official. Like, why not put your name to that? And there's a reason that that general—the the, the Times does not favor using background quotes to take a, just sort of a gratuitous swipe at someone.
0: Let's say an anonymous source gives you a bit of information that's newsworthy, and you think— uh would enlighten the public on something, mm-hmm. government function or something else. But that's the only person who tells it to you. Mm-hmm. Is that enough for the New York Times to quote the source?
1: Generally speaking, no. It depends on – but it depends on what the information is and who the source is. It depends on – always it depends on how uh, – what position the person is in to know. So taking it out of the New York Times, but let's just say generally speaking, you know, the, the source close to Trump often cited in the New York Post in the 80s and 90s was Trump. It was Trump. And so um, – <laughs> Now, he's certainly close to him. Not always. But he's he's also a person who would be in a position where he was talking about his own business to know about his
0: own business, presumably. So someone like that, who's a principal Mm -hmm. of a company or the governor of a state Mm -hmm. or something like that, someone like that who's an anonymous source, you would put more stock in because they actually have the ability to make the thing happen?
1: Theoretically, someone like that. I'm not saying Trump as a person. I'm saying, theoretically, that concept of... Someone who is a principal, somebody who is an elected official, a Senate majority leader, or, you know, a Senate minority leader, and, you know, you could carry it on down to state houses. Theoretically, if it is something that they would be in a position to know about, you would be willing to consider doing it on, a, on that basis. But again, that is not usually the preference.
0: But how does that get worked out? So an anonymous source calls you and says, I want to tell you X and Y. Can you make that decision on your own as a reporter? Or do I will you always to- talk to my editor.
1: I don't. I don't make these decisions. But does
0: your editor know who your anonymous sources are?
1: That's a great question. Um, not always, but uh, it depends. so.
0: So how do we? So I'm a former prosecutor, and you know we we used confidential informants and mm-hmm. we used, you know the, the tips and those kinds sure. of things. There's also.
1: There's some parts of process here that I'm not going to get into. Just no. Yeah.
0: But I but, warn you. I, I. but I think it's helpful for people to understand what we're talking about mm-hmm. here. You know, some people raise a question of varying legitimacy about whether or not we are policing properly false statements made by people who want to be anonymous.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that, look, I think that the my paper, I can only speak for my own paper. I think that my paper is pretty diligent about not letting that happen and not giving somebody a platform just for the sake of it uh, in terms of, you know, sort of background agenda pushing or background spouting, you know, spouting off or et cetera, et cetera. If somebody wants to say something, puts their name to it. I think that puts it in a different
0: category. So, so just clearly, again, the difference between off the record and on background is what?
1: Off the record is not to be used in any way, shape or form in publication background, uh, especially if it's not deep background, if it's just background, can be used, and you can talk about the sourcing and the attribution and how you would mutually agree to describe it
0: can you can you quote from something someone said if it's on background? if
1: you agree upon it with them, yes, but you have to agree
0: upon it. so you have to have various terms of engagement, even in an correct. On background conversation, correct,
1: but it's important because if you're a report, I mean all that we're all as good as our sources and we're, we're only as good as our word. If someone tells me something off the record and I go blow them up and put it in print, I don't – A, I don't think that that's ethical and – They'll D, never speak to you. Right. And they'll never talk to me again. So you have to – now, if somebody tells you off the record, you know, I murdered this person and then obviously I would put that in a different category. But um, look, I find off the record very frustrating because uh, I remember being a very young reporter at City Hall in room nine, um, the press room there. And uh, I think I was – 26, 25, I was at the New York Post, and Dan Barry, who's a Times columnist now and then was the City Hall Bureau Chief for the Times, was on the phone with someone, I think from the Yankees. Uh, no, there was some big Yankees story that we were all chasing at the time, and Dan was pacing, and this was the day days pretty much pre-cell phones, and so he was he was on a landline. He was talking very loudly. My memory is the rest of us used to whisper into our phones like this, and, and the Times people would always talk very loudly and confidently, because you didn't want somebody Stealing your stuff um, and and hearing your information, but so somebody was trying to talk to Dan about something off the record, and the person kept saying, "Can I go off the record?" And Dan said, "No, you cannot go off the record." And then there would be a long pause, and then I heard Dan say, "Because this is information that exists just to torture me," and I love that. And like I think I emailed him about that uh, when I joined the paper, but it's true. Like it is information that exists just to torture me, and I. I torture myself enough already. I'm, a, I'm you know, I'm a, I'm a neurotic mother of three. I have enough things that I beat myself up about.
0: Has it been established, beyond all doubt, that Donald Trump, at various times, as an adult, has been an anonymous source for a story?
1: I mean, yes, I think that's yes. been established. <laughs> Didn't Pete Hamilton? Yes, well, <laughs> said I know. Well, I'm just like
0: asking. The, I'm asking the formal question. Yeah, so By the Pete... way, this is all on the record. Oh, no, is it? You know, this is not for background? I'm totally not going to negotiate
1: this later. By the way, record. do you know that one of the rules of off the record is you cannot retroactively say this is this is on the record, off the record. This all has to be agreed upon beforehand. <laughs> I'm out of here. No. Um, the, uh, but it is true. It does have to be agreed. I, my favorite is always the people who I talk to. And then after 30 minutes, they'll go, that was all off the record. I'm yeah. like, nope, it was not. Because they realize not. they talk too much. Correct. But uh, that is not how it works.
0: Okay. So, so, so Donald Trump is so an Trump. anonymous so, source.
1: So yeah, Pete Hamill, when he was running the Daily News... Um, and he was fired from running the Daily News. He told somebody, I forget, I'm, going to, I'm going to mess up his exact words, but the paraphrase was, he got tired of running. He didn't want to run Trump stories, and Zuckerman badly wanted him to run Trump stories, and he didn't want to run Trump stories. And the Post was running circles around the, on the Daily News on Trump stories. And this was
0: back in what time frame?
1: Mm, 90s, and right. um, like 94, 95. And mm-hmm. Pete uh, said that uh, the you know the person on the other end of the phone claiming to be the you know sort of shadowy source close to Trump was invariably Trump, and like that is true. And I and I know this because I worked at the Post and um I'm close to a lot of people who were on page six with okay. the gossip page and he used to talk to them all the time.
0: So you know where I'm going with this. So. I don't actually. Um well you know that, that's you know often something? true. I it's true in sur- my house also.
1: <laughs> I love surprises. I thought
0: I you could see where this Bring is going. Right. He rails against anonymous sources. Mm. Does that do contradictions actually exist in the president's head on, on issues like this? No. No. What do you mean by that? How can that be?
1: Well, first, OK, so with the caveat that I don't live
0: there. Um, right. the, the, but you the, try to live there sometimes.
1: I know. And the space that I occupy at times is is both rent rent free and generally <laughs> not by request or application. But um, I think he believes in whatever he believes in at any given moment. And so he believes that whatever he is saying or thinking at any given moment is the truth. So,
0: so con- consistency doesn't matter.
1: Consistency does not matter. And is
0: that, has that been true over the decades that you've known him? Because I think many people know, but not everyone, used to cover Donald Trump when he was a private citizen years ago.
1: Yeah, except I did most of my coverage with him once I got to Politico um, when he was thinking of running for president in 2011. Right. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, he's always been. This is who he is. There's not much different under the sun with him on this kind of thing. He believes he makes his own weather.
0: So there was an interview that Donald Trump did just a few days ago. Mm-hmm. I believe it sort of unfolded spontaneously with one of your colleagues at Mar-a-Lago. Mike,
1: the inimitable Michael Schmidt.
0: Michael Schmidt. And some controversy has erupted around that interview, and I know you've been pretty vocal on Twitter defending mm-hmm. the way that interview unfolded, and, and you know the, the, the crux of it is there was an interview in which Michael Schmidt asked a lot of questions right. of the president, excerpts of that, or maybe the whole interview is available to read a transcript of, and the critics have said, well, Michael Schmidt, your colleague, didn't push back very much, and when Donald Trump mm-hmm. said things that were arguably untrue, as is his wont. There was no, you know, aha moment. There was no pushback on it. And Donald Trump was allowed to spout whatever he was spouting. That's the critical side. You have taken the view that, you know, the interview was a good one. Explain why you you say that.
1: So I have taken – yes, I have taken the the view that the interview was a good one. But I have also taken the view just to um, be clear that – I think he acquitted himself fine in the interview. I mean, who, really, who there did? Were, Michael. I yeah. mean, there were two different. <laughs> <laughs> That's always a question. You gotta, you've got to ask that. Uh-huh, I see what you did there. Um, the, <laughs> I think these are two separate things. I think whether it was a quote unquote good interview is more a subjective opinion, right? And that depends on whether people thought they learned something new or whether whatever. I now, I think the president of the United States saying I can do whatever I want with the Justice Department is kind of yeah. a big deal. Yeah, and it Meyers Myers up. Right, but Schmidt was getting attacked in a way that I found really unseemly. It was um, because it wasn't, wow, I don't like how this interview was conducted or, oh, I think these questions are, you know, are too soft. It was that everybody went immediately from point A to point Z or point Q. But it was, you know, he's trying to preserve his access. Like, what access? He's not a White House reporter. Like, he's not on the White House team. Like, this is not... It's just – anyway, and it was an impromptu interview that he, you know, didn't expect to get. He came with no notes. The question of live fact-checking has, generally speaking, been the province of television interviews. Now, I would say that it's a little different these days because we've all been running the Trump transcripts. And mm-hmm. I think those Trump transcripts are invaluable. They're they are in some cases more important than the stories that get written off the interview themselves. Why is that? Um, because you get to see the way his brain works, whereas the interview – the stories, you know, sort of pick out specific quotes and string them together in a certain way. In the interview, you just kind of watch the maze. And right. so I just There's not I've even any it.
0: argument of fake news in a pure transcript.
1: Well, that's the thing. I mean it's not – that's the, I think the main reason, frankly, why we all started putting out transcripts – not the main reason but a main reason um, or a, a key reason – was that it made it harder to say they twisted my words, mm-hmm. whatever, because he would do that all the time. You always have to be very careful in the campaign of what you put in writing to his aides, because you would invariably find that used against you in some way later on. Not, I don't mean to impugn anyone specifically. I just mean that you know it would become the New York Times begged me for an interview, right? And then you you would try to you know argue like I didn't beg him, and then it would be like you, but you did send that email, and it was like well yeah I did send the email, but I wasn't begging, and just you would it was like being stuck to like. Like flypaper.
0: It's not get just reporters. It. No, it was everybody. I mean, it's everybody. Jim Comey felt that he had to Correct. keep a record of the conversation Correct. so he could defend himself. Bob Corker has had to do the same thing, mm-hmm. a senator of his own party and chairman Correct. of a committee. Correct. Um, you a, be because you later. don't know how it's going to be twisted Because you don't
1: know how it's going to be used later. And, and even, and it almost, what, but unfortunately, Preet, and you know this, what we're finding now is that it doesn't actually matter because you can have the tra- People will still say, I don't see that transcript. Um, that's not real. We know what you meant. We know what... And so the president's right because he says so, but uh, I thought that Schmidt's um character was being attacked in an unfair way. A couple of Trump advisors over the years have said to me that people close to him invariably begin to act like him in in ways big and small. And that is true. I have observed that personally. His detractors sometimes also begin to act like him. And I think that Twitter has uh, exacerbated that and accelerated that in a big way because it going to immediately to Schmidt's character and motive is the exact thing that Trump does. His liberal critics detest. So I don't know why it was okay here.
0: What is the right way, if there is a right way, to interview a president and particularly a president like this?
1: It's a really good question. I think that generally speaking, the right way has been to do a version of what Mike did, right? If not exactly what Mike did, if there are things, certain things that people would have done differently, um, I, you know, there are certain things I would have done differently, but generally speaking, I think just let him talk is the right approach. You can try to steer the conversation in one direction or another, but I think generally speaking, that's the right approach. Um, I think that in the second year, I do think that things probably have to be a little more specific about... The Russia probe. I know that he argues there was no collusion and he says that repeatedly. He said in the the interview repeatedly with with Schmidt. I think at this point, especially like today, for instance, he's calling for Huma Abedin to be imprisoned. Hillary Clinton's top aide. Yeah, I saw that. Um, Based on the the old email tranche um, from her husband's computer last year. I would ask him, you know, why should she be imprisoned? But you say Mike Flynn is a good guy and uh, that this is unfair what's being done. I think that he needs to be hit with certain specifics. Again, I am in no way faulting Schmidt, who was unprepared for an interview that was impromptu with no notes. But I think that people do need to get more specific. It doesn't mean that people have to look for the Perry Mason moment, which is what I think people on Twitter sounded like they were looking for, of, you know, this sort of, aha. And then the person crumbles and says, "Okay, I colluded. Like, that's not going to happen. But I do think that letting him talk is generally speaking the best way.
0: Look, it's an interesting question from my perspective, not having, you know, any deep background in Mm -hmm. journalism. But, you know, people keep in their debate about the Mike Schmidt interview, keep talking about the Perry Mason moment or the aha moment. And people have actually practiced law and have argued in court know that sometimes an excellent cross-examination is the continued giving of rope to your witness who is going to lie again and again and again on the witness end. Now, that doesn't mean that's the only approach. That doesn't mean right. that you don't do multiple things in the course of right. the same cross examination, and which is also not to say that every interview of a president should be adversarial and, and no. a cross examination. I'm not sure, you know, I, I'm not sure that's a great it's not precedent either. It's also, and I don't, I'm not taking a particular view on Mike Schmidt's interview, mm-hmm. but it also occurs to me that not every interview has to be the definitive, defining, thorough, exhaustive interview of all time for all of journalism with respect to a president.
1: Right. I think what you just said, I think everything you just said is really important. I think that everybody has invested these these massive expectations in every interview. In a single um, interview, right. In a single interview. You know, and every reporter is being judged on some metric on Twitter that doesn't exist in actual journalism, that just exists on the the wish list of people who don't like Trump. I mean, cr- candidly, I think what, what the people who are arguing against the interview want is impeachment. And so that's not Mike's job. Um and I think that it gets to a broader point I think two things. I think that people are so frustrated who don't like the president and you know the approval ratings tell us that that's a lot of people. But people who don't like the president are having trouble with the fact that the only body in our democracy that really exists to quote unquote hold the president accountable, which is a phrase that my friends who are, are rabid partisans on the left keep saying is – and I mean my actual friends, not – I don't mean people on are Twitter. Your, is your fake um, friends? Not fake friends, not fake news friends. Congress is the only entity that exists to hold the president accountable and the court system. Like we, we right. can – Well, we, there's the special counsel also. There's a special counsel. OK. But that's – that's I, I consider that to be a part of the the legal system. So the job of journalism is not to play – is not to hold hearings, which is essentially what no, no, people but, want
0: you to do with those interviews. No, but you said you used a broader phrase, which is hold someone accountable. And I would think we that are a lot holding of people... them accountable every day. Okay, well, yeah,
1: right. but we are. I mean, like I just said, this is the thing that makes me crazy about the criticism: is like, where do people think that most of what they know about the Russia probe is coming
0: from? Well, it's so that's, coming so that's from a, reporting. So I wanted to ask you. I was thinking about, yeah, how does it play out in the newsroom among your colleagues when you get criticism from the president, and for you personally, or criticism from. The president's critics. Is there a difference in how you deal with or react to, as a human being, to the different camps of criticism?
1: You mean coming from the left or the right? Correct. Or mean, yes. Uh, no. I mean, I no. I I've, they're equal. They're equal. I mean, I think that the I think the difference is that I think that the president's ability, and this is tr- was true even before he was president, when he was a candidate, and that's when I first experienced him targeting me on Twitter. Um, and targeting by name. Not he doesn't. He actually doesn't do that anymore. With Times reporters, he, but he used to target us by name. Yeah, and how does that? How did that feel? Really terrible. Not because it was like, oh, he hurt my feelings. It was because he would set this swarm off on you. Yeah, and you know, it's why I turned my um, mentions off on Twitter for a very long time because it was just, and I still do because it, it's just. It's It's toxic. Yeah. But it was like, but that was the the first time that I really experienced that with him was November of 2015, where I did a story about how when people started screaming at me about Hillary Clinton email coverage, like I was busy getting attacked by him for my coverage of him. So, you know, I was off on something else. But um, in November 2015, he was amping up his anti-Muslim rhetoric. And I think that what gets overlooked about An aspect of the glue for his supporter base has been that it has been – there's a very strong anti-Muslim sentiment, anti-Islam sentiment beyond the wall, beyond whatever symbolism there is that he's talking about, about South America. And he was saying all kinds of things in interviews and he left open – somebody asked – it was a question that was arguably irresponsible because nobody's actually talking about a Muslim registry in the US. The only answer to that question historically is, you know, of course not. You know, I wouldn't be open to that. And what Trump said was, you know, we're looking at a lot of things. You know, we've got to look at a lot of things. We've got to be tough. Well, that's what I would call leaving it open. And he got asked about it then later by NBC. And it's not really clear that he was listening on the rope line, but he answered in the affirmative. As a candidate, you're responsible for what you say. And so we gave it page one treatment. It was a big moment, I thought. Um, I was really surprised that he was going there and at least willing to leave that open. and. He took our story and he, you know, his folks, uh, I don't know whether they ordered it up or it just was done on its own, but somebody at Breitbart wrote up some story attacking me and Trump then tweeted it and was like, thank you for this. Breitbart's so nice when the media polices the other media. And he tweeted it twice, I think. And that was the first time that I ever had a swarm. And I was like, what, <laughs> what is what this? What is that? What's going on here? <laughs> How much coffee um, did you drink that day? And It was a lot of coffee. I remember being on the Amtrak. And it was also an important moment because it was one of these times where members of the mainstream media were straining to give him benefit of the doubt. Like, you know, he wasn't really listening or maybe he was and it just was like nuts. And then he rejected every opportunity to clarify it over two days. And it was a great example of like the first time I ever saw chain reactive Trump, right, where it's like he creates chaos and then he reacts to what he creates and it just goes on forever. So he did this. We wrote it. He then made a thing. Then he did the pronouncement about thousands of cheering Muslims on 9-11 in New Jersey. And we wrote about that. I think we were the only ones. And then he got asked about it on the Sunday shows. And he, to try to prove his point, he used a clip from my colleague, Serge Kovaleski, who then was at the Washington Post, that had like a tiny reference to there were some reports that that may have happened. But And Serge said, I don't recall that ever being verified. I just remember that you know there were some reports that it might have happened. They were looking at it. And then Trump started attacking Surge, right. And then that became a whole thing. And so it was just it, – anyway, it, but that was my first experience with he six this mob on you. I don't know of anyone on the left who has had that power.
0: I'm pretty confident knowing you and knowing how strong an independent reporter you are that that would not affect how you no. conduct your writing and your reporting going forward. No. Maybe you turn off your mentions.
1: Right. <laughs> but – Right. I
0: turned off my mentions. Um, Michael, and I have, the, I have a similar sort of parallel worry about the Justice Department. Mm-hmm. You know, there are lots of people I know, Bob Mueller and others, mm-hmm. I'd like to think I was this way, that no amount of his talking and singling people out and right. also with the judiciary is going to intimidate anyone right. into not doing their job. But you worry, does that action, you know, his name calling and perhaps sticking a hive on folks, do you think it has a chilling effect in some quarters in journalism?
1: I, I imagine it does. Um, I hope it doesn't, but I mean, I, I'm it's it. I can't just prove a negative, you know. So I don't know, but but I know that it can be. I think for people who have not experienced, look, we're not we are not supposed to be the story. One of the weird things that happens when you're around Trump, and you know, whether it's me or his aides or whomever, is you become better known because that's kind of what he does, and so he makes people better known because that's what he wants. He thinks that's what everyone wants is right. attention, <laughs> fan, whatever. I don't. He thinks he's want doing that. you a favor. He thinks he's doing you a favor, correct. Right. And so, the degree to which journalists are trained to not be the story, historically, like there's a. Did you ever watch broadcast news? Yes. All right. So I'm obsessed with that movie, and it is the journalism <laughs> movie that I quote the most See, often. You've talked about it in every interview. I, I, I'm obsessed with it. And so, oh hey, listen, read. There's that Albert Brooks line. Um, he says when when William Hurt has put himself in his own date rape story, not that he committed a date rape, that he was doing a piece on date rape for TV. But Albert Brooks says, yes, let's never forget, we're the real story, not them. And like and that's to me, that's the whole ball game. And so he makes you the story. And I think that for a lot of people it's incredibly uncomfortable. And I think most people, you know, he plays smashmouth Trump in a very different way. The closest parallel I can come to from just from my own experience is Rudy Giuliani, but Rudy Giuliani would never have done a lot of the things that Trump does, ever. I, I fear there are people who respond to that kind. All it is is working the ref. It's just working the ref with a billy club instead of words. Um, But I think I worry there are people who respond to it. Yes.
0: Can I ask you about a different criticism that the press press gets? Um, So you see these studies that purport to be objective in some way that say and suggest that the number of negative stories about Trump is Mm -hmm. much higher than negative stories in the same time period against his opponent during the campaign. With the more negative stories about Donald Trump, Than there were about other people that he would compare himself to because there's some bias in the media or because he did more things about which people could reasonably write negative things or some combination of the two.
1: When organizations, foundations, schools, what have you, universities do these studies, I always question by what metric they're using defining something as negative. Okay, so that's one thing. Right. especially because Donald Trump means negative as any story he doesn't like about himself. So I have I have an issue with this in general, and this is yet another thing where um, sort of what was intended to be a scientific study gets, gets distorted by him and by his supporters. I think generally speaking, it's just because he does more things that are um, norm-breaking, violative, unusual, and so forth. Um, I don't think it's because of some bias. I also think that, like... He gets more coverage, period, than anybody. That's That was the problem during the campaign. I mean, seriously, this was the issue during the primaries. is It was like the food is terrible in such small portions. I mean, like, it, it's just constant. It's, it's, he's constantly being covered. And so— um,
0: But there's nothing to be done about that because— No, and now he's right. president.
1: There's nothing to be done about it. But when he was a candidate— but There were
0: days we didn't—people didn't think about Barack Obama.
1: Glenn Thrush and Peter Baker and I did a story um, that ran a couple weeks ago. And somebody said to us that he doesn't think that Trump can go more than a few days without seeing himself on TV. Like, it really bothers him. Based on my experience with him, that's accurate. So he does – you know, it's the make your own weather thing. He does things to put himself there. For whatever reason, it's like he stopped absorbing certain new pieces of information after 1990 or-ish, 95. But his experience with the press in New York City was the tabloids and it was pretty transactional. Not always, but sometimes. And he, I think he fundamentally doesn't understand what the D.C. press corps does and what the White House press corps does. And he doesn't understand that the job is not to sort of clap and say, you did great. And in his mind, he thinks that's what people did for Obama. Now, it is true that Obama did not get the same level of negative coverage that Trump has gotten. And you can argue why that is. But Trump is being pretty, said pretty divisive things. The travel ban is... It's pretty stark, right? So, like, I just don't. I don't. It's the sound of it, and then when when those studies are quoted, it's like you media members woke up and decided to write negatively about him, and like that's just not. That, I don't think that is in the majority of
0: cases what is happening. So that's an opinion you just expressed, and you've expressed opinions.
1: That's, <clears throat> an, that's an opinion.
0: Well, I, mean, I think well, it's, I well, think that's. Well, that's. I'm, I'm getting. You, you know, you, <laughs> you see where I'm going. Once again,
1: go ahead. Yeah, that now I do. Yes. So there there
0: are news reporters who now also it's easier because of social media and and journalists have a lot to say on television, too, who express opinions, sometimes negative ones, Mm -hmm. sometimes snarky ones about the people and the issues that they're covering. Right. And this is I'm asking this as an honest question. Is that okay? Does that hurt the credibility of people who are supposed to be straight news reporters and give a view on that?
1: I think that is the 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 most elemental debate about journalism right now, right? I mean, because I think look, I, I think that the tone of a lot of the Trump coverage, I think, is problematic. I don't mean at the times; I mean like across the board. And I think Twitter. You mean is the you mean in the, in, in the actual
0: media? In the actual media, I think right. the
1: tone of coverage, I think, is no, but it's all blurred. I mean, look, this obviously
0: people have opinions. You haven't. Everyone's allowed to have an opinion. Well, you have to
1: try to. The question it, is, it, how as,
0: much can you express it and maintain your credibility? You have as to be neutral... car- You have
1: to be careful. I mean, you have to not let your biases bleed into your coverage, and you have to not let your biases bleed. And this is where. You know, being on TV a lot can be risky. This is where Twitter is terrible, and I don't like Twitter, for the record. You tweeted Um, a lot today. I sure did, and I regret it every day. (laughs) It's that cookie that I eat and then say I'm going on a diet tomorrow. I think that it is a challenge with the Trump era to figure out how to convey to people that what we are seeing is fundamentally different than what we have seen before because it just is. Um, without that sounding like an opinion. And that is a challenge. When it sounds like an opinion, then it gets dismissed as an opinion or as a bias or what have you. And I do think that part of the problem with Twitter is that, and again, because it all bleeds together, I think that everybody's reaction, siren, is cranked up to an eleven almost all the time. And not everything he does is an eleven.
0: Right. What's well, a glib forum?,
1: <clears throat> well, but but they're all everything is a glib forum now. I mean, well, what's not? This I think podcasts. Is I mean, this is podcast.
0: Not. There's no glibness no. here at all. We, no. we edit out the glibness. So. <laughs> somebody, you know, I tweet from time to time too, as you may have noticed. What? And I, I and I regret it at the end of the day too. Hey,
1: there you go. Good. But somebody, person after my own heart.
0: Somebody tweeted out the other day. You know, I who's clearly been listening to the podcast a little bit, and they said, uh, you know, I prefer podcast breed. You see more balance. Well, of course, you think 140 characters or whatever the number is now. Right. Twitter forces you into being a cartoon. It's terrible. To everybody, it's a, it's a distortive, correct, distorting forum, correct. And yet, you and I still use it.
1: Well, um, it is it is um, important to my job. It is the president of the United States' um, preferred form of communication. Uh, and despite the discussion about him giving interviews, and and the the outrage that it raised uh, the other day, you know, he actually doesn't give that many interviews anymore. So. You know, you could argue that is a reason why every single one has to be a more perfect game, but that's even more of an argument why you can't really blame someone who didn't think he was going to be getting an interview for how he did um, in terms of real-time fact-checking. I, I think, I mean, I think Twitter is poison. I, I remember when it, when it came up in 2012 as – that was the first cycle, presidential cycle, that it was really in use and I was horrified by it and I, and I sounded like an old lady.
0: I mean it was really – So why do you keep taking the – because it's important to your job? You keep taking the poison?
1: Yeah, it's important to my job. It's very important for me to do that. I mean, do they tell you? They it's they very tell important you? What, for me do they to do tell it you to what? develop a cyanide resistance. At the, um, at, the, uh, at
0: the Times, you must tweet today? No, they do not tell me that.
1: But there, oh. are, but there are a lot of people who ask me to tweet out their stories at the Times. Have
0: you, no, you tweeted so. during this podcast?
1: I have not, which is a huge... Should I be insulted he- No, it? you should be flattered. Are oh, you kidding? Oh, okay. I
0: see, I see, I see. Please. <laughs> um, this may be a sensitive issue, but I wanted to ask you about it. You know, we initially had invited you together with one of your most frequent collaborators, Glenn Thrush, Mm -hmm. who also I know and have been uh, friendly with over the years, uh, to come on the show jointly. Mm -hmm. And then for other reasons, uh, you had to cancel. Mm -hmm. And then when we rescheduled this, obviously, Glenn has been accused, as is publicly known, of uh, a certain kind of misconduct, sexual Mm -hmm. misconduct, and I believe is on leave from the New York Times. Mm -hmm. What did you make of that?
1: It's... uh it's a fair question, and I know it's one you have to ask. Uh, there's a lot I don't want to get into about it, um, primarily because it's an internal times issue. Mm-hmm. Um, I uh, I think it was upsetting for uh, and painful for a lot of people. And um, Glenn has said he has a substance abuse problem and that he is getting help, and I'm glad about that. Um, more broadly, I think that the conversation that is taking place about sexual harassment and misconduct is enormously important. And it's a conversation that I'm glad is happening.
0: What are the conversations like at the Times about the issue generally?
1: I don't don't know that there is a conversation about the... the, Which issue? You mean About
0: Sexual harassment. harassment. I was going to
1: say, you mean Glenn or about... um, No, generally. Generally? Well, I mean, look, it was... But in
0: light of the fact that that a member of the New York Times... uh, Yeah,
1: I I think I'm going to leave that within, within the newsroom.
0: Do you make anything of a point that I saw someone make, I forget who it was, that you have all these news organizations that now have had allegations of a certain kind of impropri- sexual impropriety that that runs the gamut of um, of different kinds of misconduct. With the exception, I think, of one, WNYC, all of that conduct was uncovered by some other news organization. Mm-hmm. Does that say anything to you at all about the way that news organizations look only outward and not inward?
1: I, I, I think it's an important point. I mean, I think that... Um I think that every instance is different every outlet is different, right? So I think I don't want to generalize about whether in certain cases there were reports that went um, unlistened to or whether there were problems with people that were not um, paid attention to. Um, but I do think that the media is not, is not great at policing itself and I think that a big question um, when – this conversation began, and look, I mean, this began a while ago, it really began when Gretchen Carlson left Fox News. But I would say when, when my colleagues, Megan Toohey and Jody Cantor, who are both fantastic reporters, did the initial Harvey Weinstein story, um, you know, there was a question of, you know, is, is everyone going to suggest that it's only Fox News that has this problem or look inward? And um, and I think it has taken a while for that to come up. But I don't think that news, I don't, my sense is not, I, I think it is, I, I guess my concern more broadly About this, And it really is to your point about other news organizations uncovering what Brethren have done or sisters have done is, um, is this going to just be a lot of firings or are there actually going to be systemic structural changes? Uh, And it's way too early to know the answer to that yet. But my fear is that there's just going to be a lot of firings and no real changes.
0: Do you think I'm going to get a lot of grief for treating you in this interview like Michael Schmidt treated Donald Trump?
1: Um, Do you think that you treated me like Michael Schmidt treated Donald Trump?
0: I'm not going to answer that question.
1: Okay. Then I'm not going to answer yours either. Okay. Okay. Maggie Haberman, thank you. Thank
0: you. So this is the point in the show where I talk about something in the news that struck me personally. And as I mentioned at the top of the show, as a professional matter, there's nothing that has been more important to me as a lawyer than my time at the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York. And as I was walking over here, I got a phone call in which I was told that June Kim, the acting United States attorney, is being replaced. So I have a point to make about the process, and then I have a personal point I want to make also. First of all, with respect to process, uh, as I understand it, when a Senate-confirmed United States attorney leaves office by whatever mechanism, uh, an acting United States attorney uh, takes over. In this case, it was my deputy, June Kim. But at some point, that acting status ends under the Vacancy Act. And the deadline, as I understand it, for acting United States attorneys, many of whom took over when the Senate confirmed U.S. attorneys were asked to leave last March, is January 4th, at which point the Justice Department, through the Attorney General, is required to appoint an interim U.S. attorney. And I understand that the Attorney General uh, could appoint the acting United States attorney, in this case, June Kim, as the interim U.S. attorney. In this case, they've decided not to do that, and they're bringing in someone who used to be a prosecutor in the past named Jeff Berman. Uh, I don't know him personally, but I hope and trust he will carry on the traditions of the U.S. attorney's office in the Southern District, protect public safety, protect the people of New York, and oversee the office uh, according to the grand tradition of independence, neutrality, and the firm belief that no one is above the law. It's a privilege and an honor to lead that office, and I know he will appreciate that and respect its tradition. So what happens next? Well, there still has to be a formal nomination for someone to become the United States attorney in the Southern District. Uh, I don't know as as of the time of this recording whether that will be Jeff Berman or not. Uh, But the other procedural thing to bear in mind is that the interim United States attorney position only lasts for 120 days. At the end of 120 days from January 4th, the chief judge in the Southern District of New York, who is Judge Colleen McMahon, is empowered to appoint the United States Attorney. She can appoint Jeff Berman to continue if he's not yet confirmed by the Senate, if he had been nominated, uh, or I think anyone else. So we'll wait and see what happens there. And then I want to add a personal note. And if you listen to the show, and particularly if you have listened to the live show, I from time to time talk about June Kim who I think for the nine months since I've been gone has been an outstanding leader, uh, an outstanding lawyer, public servant, professional. June and I served as line prosecutors together, baby prosecutors, you know, 17 years ago in the U.S. Attorney's Office. And a few years ago, I tried to press June back into public service again. And he was having a grand old time in private practice. You know, think about this. He had been making considerable salary, seven figures, at a very prestigious law firm in New York, and it didn't take a lot of coaxing, because that's the kind of person he is. He has a commitment to public service. I'm glad he decided to stay on and lead the office after I left. From the time he came back to the Southern District, first as chief counsel, then as chief of the criminal division, then as deputy United States attorney, when I was there, there was not a single important decision I made about a case about personnel, uh, or about a public statement that I didn't consult June on. And, you know, hey, June, if you ever need a podcast, give me a call. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Maggie Haberman. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. It really does help new listeners discover the show. Send me your questions about news and politics. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara, or even better... Give me a call at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe and WNYC Studios. It's produced by the team at Pineapple Street Media, Chris Berube, Henry Malofsky, Jenna Weiss-Berman, Joel Lovell, and Max Linsky. Our music is by Andrew Dost. And special thanks to Julia Doyle, Jeff Eisenman, and Jake McAfee. I'm Preet Barrara. Stay tuned.